Okay, the reading this morning is from Luke chapter 12, as I said, reading verses 13 to 21, and it's entitled in the uh, New International Version, The Parable of the Rich Fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life might be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even if sometimes it is quite difficult to take in um, and understand. We just pray now for Keith as he comes up um, to, uh, to talk us through this passage, uh, but also talk about the, uh, the boomers and how that fits in with them as well, Lord, that, uh, that generation of people. And we just pray for Keith that uh, his words can be your words and they can speak directly to our hearts. Amen. ever helpful uh, to keep the Bible passage open in front of you, if you would. So this is the, uh, the last one of our Talking About My Generation series. Uh, Nick <clears throat> dealt with the silent generation. Uh, Andy Saville looked at Gen X. Uh, Johnny Laws looked at the millennials, or Gen Y, and then uh, Chung Man, uh, my colleague at uh, Ashford Kong, looked at uh, Gen Z, or Gen Generation Z. Uh, and as Bill said, I'm looking at the boomers this morning. Um, hands up if you were born between 1946 and 1964. Nice and high. Nice and high, come on. Don't be ashamed. Have a look around. Our, my guess is we are the largest group within the church, probably. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Now, the name derives from the explosion in the birth rate that took place at the end of World War II, which de defied every demographic expectation. The baby boomers uh, represent um, a huge bulge, uh, one writer likening it to a snake swallowing a bowling ball. If you can imagine the snake's narrow neck and then there's that enormous bowling ball in the middle. The boomers are like that in terms of the, the size and the impact that we had. I'm a boomer, um, albeit a late one. Um, but not all of that influence is good influence, as we'll discover. Now, experts in the field of generational analysis point to several societal changes that had their genesis in the boomer generation. Firstly, the rise of individualism in contrast to a more collective spirit. 
of previous generations. Sex before marriage became much less of a taboo amongst the boomers. The boomers themselves would actually mark a decline in the birth rate, largely due to the availability of contraception. The divorce rate grew over the boomer years. Alcohol and drug uh, taking became much more commonplace during the boomer years. The latter, not so much as a mark of rebellion, but more in order to fit in. And with the uh, advent of the television, um, the boomers were the first really to be exposed to mass advertising. And as a result, the economic prosperity enjoyed by many in the boomer years and the materialism that followed really is unparalleled. Now also, through technology and the arrival of many home appliances that made, simply made life that bit easier to, uh, to tackle, what also happened during the boomer years was that far more women began to work outside of the home. A, a, a statistic that has obviously continued to rise. But as with all the generations, the boomers didn't stay the same forever. So the hippies of the 1960s, they gave way to the yuppies of the 1980s, same generation. The Vietnam War protesters of the 1970s, uh, many of them are in governmental positions now in the United States. As one uh, writer satirically put it, that if you're not a liberal at 25, then you have no heart, and if you're not a conservative at 35, you have no brains. Now that's a bit offensive, I appreciate, but it's, they're, they're hitting it on the point that often we become more conservative, that is conservative with a small c, the older we get. And the boomer generation was probably summed up well by Bob Dylan with a famous song in 1964. These are the lyrics. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. So get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. What's the final line? The times, they are changing. At times, they are changing. Now, to speak into the boomer generation, each of us as preachers, we picked a uh, parable, and I picked the parable of the rich fool. Um, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it says that Jesus is facing a crowd of thousands. And from this huge crowd, a man makes a request of Jesus. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide his, the inheritance with me. Now, this, this may come across as a little bit rude to us, um, but it would have been very normal for Jewish teachers or rabbis like Jesus to make judgments from the law to settle disputes. But Jesus replies to this man, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? He's telling this man and his brother, just go and sort out your family problems. You know the old expression, you know, where there's a will, there's a relative. You know, it's, it's go and sort out the inheritance yourselves. But then he says this, to get to the real heart of the issue, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells the parable. 
Now, I said earlier in my, uh, in my introduction, the, the parables, they speak to us all, okay, whatever generation we might be in. So it's not that this is a boomer parable and it's irrelevant to everyone else. No, this parable speaks to us all, but I think it perhaps has a particular relevance to the boomers in that the way perhaps I see it is one of the big boomer blind spots is this. We think we're in control. We think we're in control. So we're going to look at this parable. If you could put the next slide up. We're going to look at this parable in these three uh, ways. Firstly, how would the judge, how would rather the world judge this man and why? Secondly, how did God judge him and why? And lastly, what's the lesson that every single one of us need to take away this morning? So firstly, how would the world judge this man and why? Well, we read at the beginning, don't we? The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my, my crops. So the man is already wealthy, okay? And then he enjoys a bumper harvest, but he faces capacity constraints with nowhere to store his extra crops. Now, there is absolutely no indication whatsoever in this parable that this man has become wealthy through illicit or illegal means. But rather, as you read the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, good crops were actually a mark of God's blessing. So it seems that the Lord has blessed this man. Well, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I'll store my grain and my goods. Well, this is surely a wise thing to do, isn't it? Uh, a, a feature of our landscape in the UK in recent years, up and down our motorways, are these enormous distribution sheds, aren't there? Might be Amazon or, or um, Sainsbury's, it might be Ocado, Tesco's, whoever it is, you know, they're storing their stuff. So surely what the guy's doing here is quite sensible, isn't it? Then, with his crops and his goods safely stored away, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, how would the world judge this man, do you think? Shout it out. How would the world judge him? Successful, Successful exactly. This man is a success story. He's achieved complete financial independence. You see, the content of his barns is his annuity for the rest of his life. He's not dependent on anyone. He can do what he wants. He can go where he wants. He can buy what he wants. The guy in this parable is clearly rich, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's not me, so it doesn't apply. But surely, isn't this the carrot that's dangled in front of us all the time? Isn't this what sort of pops up on our social media feeds? Isn't this the sales pitch of every financial advisor and retirement specialist? Underneath it all, isn't this what we secretly would really quite like? To build just enough capital base so that we don't really have to rely on anyone else. The ability to eat where we want, go where we want, buy what we want. Isn't this the stuff of the boomer bucket list? Of course it is. 
You see, the boomer generation in general experienced economic prosperity like no other generation before or since. Materialism, as we know it, took off in the boomer years, and that plane has not landed. So the man in the parable thought that all of his stuff meant that he was in complete control. He could sit back, he could relax, he could take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't this subtly what we would quite like to? Have just enough stuff to be in control of our destiny too. I won't be dependent on anyone else. So the world judged this man a success. He thought he was in control. How does God judge him? Well, look at verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. The world hails the man a success. God says he's a fool. That's quite strong stuff, God. You better have some good ammunition to back up such a verdict. Well, God informs the man who thought he was in complete control of his destiny that something was about to happen. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Before the day is over, you're going to die. Now, death is the constant reminder to us all, isn't it, that we are not in control of our destiny. Note that his life's demanded from him. It's not sort of he's in control to give it up. No, it's demanded from him. He has no say. Um, We read in Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So the span of our lives is ordained by God and something not under our control. Some of you were at a Passion for Life 2014, 10 years ago, when the famous footballer Cyril Regis, uh, he spoke at the men's uh, sports quiz, and uh, he said that night that it was the sudden death of his former uh, colleague and friend, Laurie Cunningham, who played alongside Cyril at West Bromwich Albion, um, that caused him to question what his life was about. Uh, Cyril said of Cunningham, you know, he had all the trappings of success. He was playing for Real Madrid. He had houses, he had money, he had jewelry, had fast, you know, he, he had the lot. But, and just like the man in the parable, but one night, Cunningham's life was demanded from him. Now, little did we know in 2014 when we were listening to Cyril Regis, that less than four years later, on the 14th of January 2018, his life would be demanded from him at the tender age of 59. He too was a boomer. One day, our life will be demanded from us. It's a sobering fact. And Jesus then poses a very simple question. It's really the explanation why God judges the man to be a fool. In the light of the the man's imminent demise, Jesus says, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Now, Jesus is not at this point 
um, inviting the man to sort of list his relatives who's on his will. You know, who's going to get what you've got? No. The answer to the question, then who will get what you have preferred for yourself, is not you. Not you. The man had devoted his life to the accumulation of a ton of stuff, and he would not get to enjoy it even for one day. That's bonkers, isn't it? That is foolishness. That's why God tells him he's a fool. The writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon, he sums it up really well. He says this, I hated all things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Worked hard all your life, then you're handed all over to someone who could just fritter it away. John D. Rockefeller, the billionaire owner of Standard Oil, uh, he passed away and at his funeral, someone reputedly asked his accountant, so how much did the great man leave? And the accountant turned to him and he said, all of it. The lot. So the man who the world would judge to be a success, God says, is a fool. All the possessions he'd amassed and thought gave him control over his destiny, in the event of his imminent demise, he'd have to leave to others. That's why Jesus issues this warning. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If we think life is about accumulating and amassing stuff in preparation for that day when we can just sit back and enjoy it and and lap it all up, we are making the most gigantic mistake. And at that point, it may well be too late to do anything about it. So we're to watch out, we're to be on our guard, because this is a trap that not only boomers, but every single one of us could fall into. It's so easy, so easy to think that riches and possessions give us control. Some of you may know uh, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And he says three things that choke the seed. And uh, that window there, the seed is the word. The seed of God's word. Three things that choke the word from producing a harvest in a person's life. The first thing is the worries of life. The second thing is the desire for other things. And the third thing is the deceitfulness of wealth. Wealth deceives. So thirdly, what is the lesson that we need to learn? Look at verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Now, what does he mean by being rich towards God? Does he mean that uh, the man should really have just given a bit to God, a bit like, you know, you've had a nice meal at the Three Horseshoes and think the guy or the girl who, who waited at the table, you know, they did a good job, but we'll give them a tip. You know, is it that, you know, God's being pretty kind to me in life? Yeah, I'll tip him. I'll give him a bit. Is that what it means to be rich towards God? Well, no, it isn't. 
Um, but before looking at what it means to be rich towards God, we need to understand what is the man's fundamental problem. Yes, he's greedy. Yes, he's foolish. Yes, he thought he was in complete control of his life. But these are all symptoms of a far deeper problem, okay? And to see that, let's just quickly walk through the story again. Start verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Verse 18. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, what's the man's problem? Selfish? Selfish? Yeah, absolutely. It is all about him, isn't it? This is, this is a conversation he's having with himself. It's an echo chamber. There is absolutely, God is absolutely nowhere in this man's life. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain, we have all we want is a terrible saying when all doesn't include God. But how many people say that? Oh, we got all we want. But they're missing the most important person. Now, the interesting thing about such an attitude is Funnily enough, it cuts across all barriers. It's not really about money and wealth. The person who has nothing, who plays the victim card and, and constantly is full of self-pity, is just as self-focused as this rich man. It's all about them. There's no room for God. And when we honestly look at our own lives, how easy it is for us to just push God to the margin, the edge, you know, summon him occasionally when, you know, it's, uh, we've got a need, but the rest of the time, he goes to the edge. Now, in, in many ways, this is why I think this parable especially speaks to the boomer generation, because it was the boomers who really were at the forefront of this individualistic uh, spirit that is now so prevalent in our culture. One way of seeing this shift to individualism is by using the Google Books database. I'm relying on someone else's research, which I'm going to quote. But basically, that tracks word use over many, many years. So researchers compared two words, okay? The words were give and get. Now, the word give has a bit more of a collective spirit about it, doesn't it? To give is to be generous. It is to be other-centered. Whereas to get is to be much more individualistic, more me-centered, you know, grabby, etc. So basically, they contrasted the use of these two words over many, many years. They began in the 1940s, uh, give one out by a mile. Okay, give was used in literature ton more than get. Interestingly, in the 1950s and the 1960s, the two words became somewhat level. It was a bit nip and tuck between the two words. But then interestingly, in the 1970s, the word get started to appear much more often than the word give. And by 2010, in literature, Google Books database, you will read the word get twice as often as the word give. Now, one bit of research, 
okay, one swallow doesn't make a summer. But why are we so individualistic? Well, it started back there in so many ways, those boomy years. You see, to define our lives by the abundance of our possessions, i.e., what can I get, as the man does in this parable, is the ultimate reversal of the creature serving the creation, but totally ignoring the creator. But to be rich towards God, which is Jesus' punchline here, the lesson all of us need to learn, is to put him at the center. John 10.10, the verses Sir Regis interestingly spoke about 10 years ago. He says this, Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus, if you like, in this parable is warning us that life is not found in our stuff. But the very reason Jesus came into the world was in fact to give us life, eternal life. And in John chapter 17, verse 3, he defines eternal life. as It's to know the Lord God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's a relationship with the God who made us. And in the very next verse in John's gospel, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The man thought that his possessions gave him control over his destiny but his imminent death proved the foolishness of such notions. None of us are in control of our lives, none of us. But there is someone who is in control. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who laid down his life for you and me on the cross for our sins. And three days later, he rose again, conquering Satan, sin and death for us. And the life that he gives us is eternal life. Life forever with the eternal one. So Jesus ultimately gave his life so that we could get it. To turn and trust Jesus is to put my life in the safest possible hands of the one who is in control. So the world would judge the man a success because he seemed to be in control. But Jesus says he's a fool because he has zero control over his destiny. Everything he's poured his life into, he's giving to others. And the lesson that Jesus wants us to learn is to not look for life in what we might amass, but to be rich towards him, which means putting him at the very center of our lives, the good shepherd who really is in control. But let me end, though, by going back to something that Jesus says right at the beginning of this story. Because when, the, when um, the man asked Jesus, you know, tell my brother to share his inheritance, Jesus' reply to him is this, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Here's the thing, Jesus is, though, the judge ultimately. But not coming to sort out petty family squabbles, he's come to sort out far more important issues. When the Apostle Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he said this, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, and he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. See, one day, every single one of us 
will meet the Lord Jesus face to face on that day. The day when we meet Jesus, the judge, is not the moment to say, oh, oh, I get it. No. Therefore, as a pastor, as a friend of this church, I want to encourage you as lovingly and yet as firmly as I can. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. Why don't you this morning put your hand, put your life in the hands of the one who is in control, the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. Let me pray. Let's bow our heads. Dear Lord God, help me to see that no created thing, no matter how much of it we might possess, will ever give us control over our destinies. Please open our eyes this morning to the rebellion in our hearts against you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid the price for that rebellion when you died on the cross. Please forgive us and help us to turn and trust you, Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who really is in complete control. And help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to live the remainder of our lives dependent upon you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.